Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We're at today, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to be resuming with verse 19. We got up through verse 18 last time. Genesis 6, 19, and somebody might reading verses 19, 20, 21, and 22, please. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. To keep them alive with you, they shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing on the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you, keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. All right, so here we have a situation where I've called it, or I've titled it on the board, today's lesson is the plan for the animals. You remember we talked about last week the ark and the dimensions of the ark. Pretty big boat. (laughs) I think we pretty much all agree that was a pretty big vessel. Anybody remember, and if you don't, you can look at verse 15. Anybody remember the dimensions? The dimensions of the ark. Football field and a half long. There, good. Football field and a half long. Good. 450 feet or more, depending on the size of the cubit that was being used at the time. 300 cubits was the length that's given in verse 15. 300 cubits for the length. How about the width? A semi. A semi. Or roughly 75 feet or 50 cubits, right? So 50 cubits wide. And then, anybody remember the height? 30. 30. 30 cubits. So the length, the width, and the height. Looking at the length and the width, what is the ratio here? What is the ratio? If this is 1, it's 1 to what? 6. six. 1 to 6, right. So it's 1 to 6. An interesting thing I learned in this last week, kind of, uh, as I was mentioning that I'm, I'm learning as I'm preparing, is that they did a study. There was this group that did a study in 1993 says here, Noah's Ark was the focus of a major 1993 scientific study headed by Dr. Sion Hong at the World Class Ship Research Center, and then it has this acronym, CRISO, based in Daejeon, South Korea. I'm sure I'm probably mispronouncing that. Dr. Hong's team compared 12 hulls. Okay, you know what a hull is. Basically, you know, it's the, it's the shape. It's the footprint of the boat in the water, okay, if you will. Compared 12 hulls of different proportions to discover which design was most practical. So here's what they did. They took Noah's Ark, all right, the dimensions, the one and six, and they also compared what's going to happen if we change these dimensions. So they would take the dimensions that we have here, and then they said, what's going to happen if we take the length and we increase it, if we make the arc longer? And then what's going to happen if we make the length shorter? What's going to happen if we make the width greater. What's going to happen if we decrease the width? How about the height? If we make the height greater, what's going to happen if we decrease the height? And then they said, what would happen if we took the length and the width and increased those? The length and the width and decreased those. How about the width and the height and increased, or the width and the height and decreased? 
And then what's going to happen if we take the length and the height and increase it, and then the length and the height and decrease it? When you're talking about a craft this big, you need stability, you need strength, and you need comfort. It does no good if your cargo has all died because of a lack of you know, comfort by being bashed around by the waves, right? What was discovered as they did this, as they were going through it, is that if you tweak the numbers, you could increase one of these three categories, but you would do that at the expense of the other two. So they would find out something like, well, if you increase the width, you would increase the stability, but you would be compromising the strength and the comfort. If you increased the length, you would be increasing the comfort, but you would be doing it at a sacrifice of strength and stability. And that if you increase the height, you would bolster the strength, but you would compromise stability and comfort. They found out that they couldn't improve upon the basic dimensions of the art. That 1 to 6 ratio, in fact, they had noticed that the 1 to 6 ratio is actually what's used for our modern-day cargo ships for stability, strength, and comfort. Kind of cool where little things like that show up, where God's word is seen to be verifiable. I mean, could this happen? Could this vessel actually be seaworthy? Yeah. Not just could it be. It is. And it's the model we use today for our modern cargo ships. Once again, where you see that God's word can be trusted. Now, you you remember that I mentioned that there are flood stories in cultures all all around the planet. And one account I read said 500 different flood accounts. And they have boats of different shapes and sizes. And some of them are clearly not seaworthy. There's one that mentions a cube, and there's another one that mentions a pyramid. These are not vessels that you can trust to float very well. These are not vessels that are going to make a journey such as this. What does that tell us? It tells us there's a grain of truth, but for the most part, can you trust it? No, you can't trust those. God's word shows up as something you can trust. I like that. I like how you can continually dig into God's word and find it to be trustworthy. Moving on to verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring how many? Two Two of every sort into the ark. To keep them alive with you, they shall be male and female. So according to this verse, what is the purpose of bringing animals on the ark? Keep them alive. Keep them alive, exactly. What is something we might be able to learn about God's nature and character in that idea? Love's life. Preservation of life. Preservation of life. I mean, he could just wipe everything out. And start over if he wants, or decide, no, I'm not going to start over if he wants. No, there's something about God's nature and character where he cares about life. By the way, in this verse here, it says two, but I'm sure some of you astute Bible students would recognize that in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, we have a little bit more of an application of of the directions that are given to Noah. What does it say over there in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3? Seven clean. Seven? Oh, interesting. She mentions clean. Yeah, seven clean. Noah is called upon to differentiate between clean and unclean animals. And in doing so, he's to, okay, this is in the category of clean. I need seven of these. This is in the category of unclean. I only need two of those. So it's kind of interesting over there that we see that. By the way, clean and unclean, we're going to talk about this a little bit more later. But clean and unclean is something that comes up later in our Bible study. Uh, We're going to see it in Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14. All right, so I'm just going to mention that right now. Quick question. Yes. When it says, you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal. Okay. What is that a list of that? What animals are clean? I guess we're going to talk about it now. (laughs) How do you know? How did he know? Good question. Good question. Think about this. Because here's what Steve's asking. Steve recognizes that Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14 
are not before this. They come after. Those are Moses, right? Moses ends up being blessed by God, given the revelation to be able to write this stuff down. And Moses is the one that pens Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But as far as chronology happens, Noah happens before Mount Sinai. Noah happens before the wandering in the wilderness. Noah happens before the list is made, is I think what Steve is pointing yeah. at. So there has to be something somewhere that Noah has to be able to refer to to figure out what's clean and what's unclean. Right? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. We don't have that list. We don't know when the meeting was. We don't know when the information was given. But somehow Noah knows here in chapter 6 and 7 what we don't get to see until Deuteronomy. What we don't get to see until Leviticus. So there is stuff behind the scenes where Noah has to be able to differentiate. And it, there is a possibility, too, that maybe it wasn't up to Noah to differentiate. Maybe it's up to Noah just to recognize, why do I have seven of these? Oh, maybe these are in the category of clean. <laughs> because, you remember, Noah doesn't go out and get the animals. They come to him, right. which makes the job a lot easier. <laughs> All right? Because yeah. it's going to... I'll tell you what, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So yeah, excellent questions. Somewhere along the way, there's clean and unclean. Mm -hmm. And we find out on the ark that there's a differentiation between them. Whether or not Noah was given instructions ahead of time as to you be the one that knows the difference, or if you just be able to figure out based on what I send you, we don't know. But great observation. All right, so going back to verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. One of the things we should notice in looking at verses 19, 20, and 21 is you're going to see a lot of recurring themes that come right out of the creation account. You're going to see recurring things such as uh, the mention of male and female, the mention of birds, the mention of beasts, the mention of crawling creatures. Those all come right out of uh, chapter 1, verse 27, chapter 1, verse 25. You're going to see the mention of kind, uh, which comes out of chapter 1, verse 11 and following. You're going to see food discussed in chapter 1, verse 30. You're, gonna, you're seeing basically what's happening is God is saving everything that he's declared very good at the, at the point of creation. By the way, these two big accounts, the creation account and the flood account, if you remember from Second Peter, these are, the, these are the accounts that people mock. These are the accounts that Peter told us, hey, scoffers are going to come and they're going to point to these two things and despise those. Why is that? Because it's talking about a creator God and a judge God, all right? That God is real and a creator, and God is real and a judge. And if you want to live your life the way you want to live your life and you don't want God buttoned in, you got to be able to do away with a God who's a creator, otherwise he's got a claim on your life, and you got to do away with a God who's a judge, otherwise you're going to be held accountable for your choices. So if you can get rid of, or if you can despise, or if you can convince yourself that the creation and the flood are not real, then you're better off for it. But if you're trying to live your life for yourself, Knowing that there is a God who's a, who's a creator and has a claim on your life, and knowing that there is a God who has a claim who is going to hold you accountable for your choices, that makes it a little difficult to live with abandon, <laughs> all right? If you in a bad sense, all right. So those are the two big accounts that Second Peter tells us to watch for scoffers to mock and ridicule and point at and say, yeah, I don't, I don't believe those things. Moving on from there. Chapter 6, verse 20, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. By the way, what word just repeated itself several times there? Kind. The word kind. Right, the word kind. In Hebrew, or I guess in English, <laughs> but English letters trying to con convey to us the Hebrew word. The word is min, all right? This word occurs 31 times in 18 verses. 
what you're going to see here is a lot of these are in Genesis chapter 1. You're going to see it here in chapter 6. You're going to see it in chapter 7. You're going to see it in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. And then there's also another one, Ezekiel 47. Of these places that it occurs, the Ezekiel 47.10 passage, it occurs one time. Of these two chapters, this word occurs 42% of the times that it appears. So almost half of the times that this word is used, it occurs over there in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And then in the Genesis passage, in Genesis chapter 1 alone, it shows up 2, 4, 6, 9, 10 times. 10 times, a third, a third of the time. What does that mean? Well, let's look at a few of these. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Somebody mind reading chapter 1, verse 11. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that, ye- that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. Excellent. So you see the word kind show up there, and that's the first time that it shows up. What is it discussing? What's the category of things being talked about? There? Plants. Yeah, it's plant life. Right? So we got kind over there mentioned for the first time, and it has to do with plants. How about verse 12? What does it say there? The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and the trees bearing fruit in which in their seed, each according to its kind. And God <laughs> saw that it was good. So we've got kind mentioned in that verse as well, and it comes up two times there. What's the topic? If, if verse 11 was plants, what's verse 12? Plants. Same, same yeah, thing. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 no trick. <laughs> verse 21. Go to verse 21. Somebody mind reading that one. And God created the great creatures, living and moving thing with which the waters teem, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. All right, excellent. Thank you, Dave. What is being talked about there? What's the topic? Fish and birds. Yeah, it's talking about animals now. Plants, animals. How about verse 24? Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. Excellent, thank you. How about verse 25? God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Excellent. So in verses 24 and 25, what's the topic? Creatures, animals. Creatures and animals. So we've seen all the places that kind occurs in Genesis chapter 1. It's either talking about plants or it's talking about animals when it's talking about kind. When you look at Genesis chapter 6, which is where we're at right now, chapter 6, verse 20, what's being talked about there? What does it say there? Birds and animals. There, you've got animals there. How about chapter 7, verse 14? What does it say over there? They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Thank you, Mike. What's being talked about there? Animals, right? Beasts, creatures. And and we can look at these other ones. There's six verses in Leviticus. There's four verses in Deuteronomy. There's one verse in Ezekiel. Every single time that this word is used in the Old Testament, it's talking about a differentiation within a group. It's talking about kinds of plants or kinds of animals. It's talking about things, plants or animals, that can reproduce. Mm -hmm. Plants or animals that can reproduce, that you can separate into categories or separate into groups. Okay? This word is never used to describe kinds of rocks. It's never used to describe kinds of rugs. It's never used to describe kinds of cities. 
or kinds of citizens. It's never used to describe kinds of swords or shields, breads or bread baskets. It's never used to describe diseases or directions, weather or wool, people or places. The word is only used to describe animals and plants. And a lot of times you see it in conjunction with the ability to reproduce. Okay? By the way, what is the cargo on the, on the ark? What's the cargo? It's plants and animals, right? So when Noah is given instructions to take kinds of things on the ark, it's plants and animals. That's the cargo. Okay? What is a kind then? What is a kind? The next question is going to be obviously how many kinds did you have to take on the ark, right? <laughs> how many animals did, did we really have to fit there? All right, so before we can answer how many animals we have to fit there, we've got to decide, we've got to decide what is kinds. Here's what I want to say. Let me write this word on, on the board. Because it's probably something that we're already thinking. Species. All right, let's, let's write species on the board. Species ends up coming up in thought and idea with Plato. All right, Plato, the uh, philosopher. And we're talking back in the 1200s. Plato comes up with this idea of species. And his idea of species is that it's unchanging. A species is unchanging and can't be known. I'm not going to have enough room on this board. I can tell that already. <laughs> All right. So in, in the 1200s, Plato comes up with the idea of, of species. And his idea is that it's something that's unchanging, and it's something that can't be known. He, he sees it as an ideal. As an ideal from the mind of God, and we can't know what, what he had in mind. We, we can't trace back and figure out what was, what was at the point of creation, or, or what was on the ark. That we can't know the actual creatures. Okay. Fast forward now to the 1750s. A guy named, a Christian named Carl Linnaeus. Carl Linnaeus is the guy who's credited with coming up with taxonomy. All right. Let's see if I can say this right. The taxonomical scale. All right. And you guys have probably heard this before. Kingdom. All right. Now we're going, oh, I, I think I remember this. All right. Phylum. Class. Order. Family. Genus and species. All right? Here's one of the things I want to say. Just keep in mind as we're going that this idea of species, the first occurrence of it is 1200 AD. We're talking 3,000 years plus after the flood. We're talking well after this was written. So one of the things I want us to be thinking about is when the Bible says kinds, is it referring to species? Because that's where a lot of modern-day scoffers make a leap. They go, you can't fit all the species on the ark. Why would they say that? Because there's a lot of species. Okay? The number of species <laughs> right now is on the order of uh, 7 to 9 million species. 7 to 9 million <laughs> species. So they go, you can't fit all that on the ark. That's a lot of species. Well, is species synonymous with kinds? No, it's not. Take you a little bit further. Just fill this in a little bit more. For the taxonomy scale, let's use a dog. So the kingdom for a dog is animal. The phylum for dog is chordata. <laughs> Anybody know what that is? Musical note. <laughs> Good. <laughs> no. It's a spinal cord. Something that has a spinal cord. All right. So a chordata is a presence of a nerve cord along the back. Class is mammalia, or you know what that is. It's a mammal. It's a mammal. So we're talking about a dog. The order 
is carnivore. The family is Candaea, or dog. All right, so it's a dog family. And then the genus and the species, the way that Linnaeus handled it is he combined these two into a two-word description. So you're going to always kind of see these together in Linnaeus's way of, of doing it. And so the dog kind of ends up with the genus is Canis, and then common dog, Familiaris. What about a Chihuahua and a Great Dane? <laughs> it turns out a Chihuahua and a Great Dane are the same species. And I go, what? <laughs> How can you have a Chihuahua this big be the same, as, the same species as the Great Dane? There's all kinds of debates in the community that studies this kind of stuff as to what makes a species. There's not even a consensus. In fact, this whole scale, they're not even, there's not even a consensus on the scale. There's a whole other group of people that go, you know what, we're going to take those same terms, we're going to start ours with domain up here, and then go to kingdom, and we're going we're gonna to interpret it slightly differently. All right? So there's no consensus on the scale, there's no consensus on what the scale starts with, and there's no consensus as to what makes a species. Because here's what happened when Linnaeus, when, when, when Plato proposed species, he was saying it's unchanging, and he was saying it's an ideal. Linnaeus said, I'm going to stick with the unchanging, but I have a feeling we can figure it out. So instead of an ideal, he wanted to be able to figure it out. What did the animal look like? What kind of animal was it that was at creation? What kind of animal was it that was at Noah's Ark? And not, when I say animal, I don't, I don't mean singular, as if there was one. All right, But basically, what were the animals in the garden? What were the animals on the ark? Okay? And then later he found that it, it wasn't working out. He couldn't quite fit it. Go closer to our day, and you've got Darwin. Okay, so Darwin comes along. He's on his beagle. He's going off to the Galapagos Islands. He's studying the finches, and he's writing the origin of the species. And he's coming up in 1859 with this idea that species are changing. Now the idea is that species are changing. So by Darwin, 1859, species are changing. At least that's the understanding. All along, what makes a species? They're going. It's characteristics that are shared between animals. So you look at this animal and you look at that animal. Does this one have a pouch? Does that one have a pouch? Hmm, let's put them in the same category. Does this one have tusks? Does this one have tusks? Let's, you know. So they're looking at characteristics and trying to determine species. Well, by 1942, that's not working out either. So instead of characteristics, there's a proposal to make a shift. Let's consider determining species not based on characteristics, but rather based on the ability to reproduce with one another. Can these animals mate and have offspring? If so, let's class them together like that. Because you put a cat and a dog together and you're not going to get a dat or a cog. Okay? <laughs> but you put a horse and a zebra together and you can come up with a creature that's half horse, half zebra. So they're going horses and zebras then are they're probably closer to one another than a cat and a dog. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So they shifted away from species being traits, and they shifted to species being able to mate. But there's a problem with that. How do you test it? For example, maybe you've got one of these animals on this continent and one of these animals on this continent. It's going to be a little tricky to know whether or not they're related unless we can get them together and mate. Oh, but you put them together and they don't like each other. <laughs> How are you going to test? Do you do this with all the animals? Do you just make random arrangements and see which ones like each other? You can see how this is difficult. And then what do you do with one that's extinct? How do you find out if the modern-day animal that you think is related to the extinct animal could have reproduced? You can't. You can't test that. 
Right? So there are problems even yet. There's something else you need to know as well. That's too dating. <laughs> we need to talk about microevolution. We need to talk about macroevolution. Creationists and evolutionists agree. They would agree. Let me put it this way. What kind of animal is a chihuahua? It's a dog. It's a dog. It's a dog. What kind of animal is a Dalmatian? It's a dog. What kind of animal is St. Bernard? A Labrador? Dog. These are dogs. These are of the dog kind. Okay? Both creation and evolutionists believe that a Chihuahua and a Dalmatian are related. Okay? They both, they both will say, yes, these animals are related. The difference is, the creationists would say, but a dog is not related to a cat where the evolutionists would say a dog is related to a cat, and to a hippo, and to a whale, and to a tree. Okay? Same pool of ooze. Yes, exactly right. From the pool, from the, what, how's it go? From the goo to you through the zoo, I think is the way that it was described. All right? Yeah. The, the idea is that if you have nine million species on the earth, in the idea of evolution, it's a tree of life, okay? So imagine, the, let me draw a quick tree, okay? <laughs> Branches, right? Branches off the tree. So in, in the idea of evolution, everything, if you could imagine every single branch is a different species, you could trace all these down to one or origination source. You see what I'm saying? So their idea is that whatever happened in that primordial soup, where life, all of a sudden, there it is, that from that came everything, all life, whether it's plants, whether it's animals, whether it's bacteria, whatever the case might be, that everything came from that one lightning strike in the primordial soup. Okay? That's the tree of life illustration that's used by an evolutionist. The creationist alternative to the tree of life is the orchard of life. So the orchard of life, here's how that works. That all dogs, the kind, the dog kind, can be traced back or has as its origination a dog. But that cats aren't anywhere in that tree. They're in a different tree in the orchard. That all cats can be traced back to the cat. All You, you see what I'm saying? So that there's many trees. That this is a dog kind of tree. This is a cat kind of tree. This is, and you can see where I'm going with this. So the creation perspective is, that God created these animals, individual kinds, that aren't related to each other other than being animals. Okay? And that from those original animals, by the way, that would make the job a lot, a, the job a lot easier for Adam to name them, right? Because yeah. then you just have, okay, here's a male and female coming up, what are you going to call them? You know, and there they go, and the next, you know, and you can get them done quicker because there's only a few of them. All right. <laughs> Whereas, suppose if you had everything coming by, okay, you can see that logistically might take a while. All right. So the idea of of the tree of life and the orchard of life. Now, microevolution, macroevolution. Microevolution is changes within a kind. Creationists and evolutionists subscribe to microevolution. Does microevolution occur, Mister Creationist? Yes, it does. Does microevolution occur, Mister Evolutionist? Yes, it does. Macroevolution. Change changes from one kind into another. Mr. Evolutionist, does macroevolution occur? Yes, it does. 
Mr. Creationist, does macroevolution occur? No. Okay? So, what is microevolution? This says that, the belief is, that the dogs can come from an original pair of dogs. The dogs we have today can come from two dogs that have genetically everything that's needed for all the other dogs to come from. Right? This group, evolutionists would say, yes, we're okay with that too. This says that the dogs came from something before it, which wasn't a dog, which came from something before it, which wasn't one of those. You see what I'm saying? So this is the idea that you can have a fish become an animal that walks on the ground and breathes air. Okay, that's macroevolution. Microevolution, maybe this word, natural selection. Some of you, I write that down and I say it, and you go, oh, wait a minute. Aren't we treading into the depths of evolution? <laughs> okay. Natural selection is an idea that's supported not just by evolutionists, but by creationists. Do you remember in school? I remember in school, maybe you guys had the same textbooks I did, because a lot of times they use the same textbooks. I remember in school looking at a page, looking at a picture on the page, and it showed the peppered moths of England. Do you remember this in the Industrial Revolution? And it showed these moths, and one of them is kind of a kind of a lighter color of black and white, and another one was kind of a darker color of black and white. And the suggestion was that these moths would land on the trees with the bark that was pretty much a lighter color. And so the lighter colored moths wouldn't get picked off by the birds. The birds would come and pick off the darker colored moths more readily than the lighter colored moths. But during the Industrial Revolution, what's going on? Smokestacks, belching out soot. The colors of the tree trunks are starting to darken. What's happening? The darker colored moths are getting missed by the birds, but the lighter ones are getting picked off. What's going on there? It's microevolution. It's changes within a kind. Okay? You can have light-colored moths and dark-colored moths from the same parents, and you can have, by natural selection, some of them getting picked off more than the others based on the color of the tree trunk. All right? That's microevolution. How about this other one? Uh, the study of uh, Darwin, and he's doing his Galapagos Islands thing, and he's looking at the finches, and he's showing that the beaks of the finches are slightly different. And he's got all these little illustrations that he's got in his thing that's going to become the origin of species. And he's drawing little drawings, little illustrations of the differences in the beaks of the finches. It's still a finch. There might be changes between finch to finch to finch to finch with different micro changes, little changes. Changes within that kind. That's not proof for macroevolution. Here's what happens. There are no evidences of macroevolution. There's lots of evidences of microevolution. But when it comes to macroevolutions, changes from one kind into another, there's no proof of this. It's a theory of evolution. It's not a fact of evolution. Here's what happens. Because the evolutionists don't have any proof for macroevolution, they suggest it's there. And the way they suggest it's there is they go, but look at our proof of microevolution. Therefore, you can trust us on this one too. Right? They pick microevolution proof, and they suggest then, because we know what we're talking about here, trust us on this. And when you're only hearing them say evolution, you're thinking to yourself, that makes sense, I guess evolution is true. When they're not telling you up front, they're talking about micro and using the examples of microevolution to support macroevolution, of which there is none. No transition kind showing one thing changing into another thing. One kind changing into another kind. Okay? So what is a kind? Well, kind of like I was saying, Get your dogs, trace them back, you got a pair of dogs. Get your cats, trace them back, got a pair of cats. Now you're probably thinking, I just have a hard time believing that my little kitty cat at home came from the, the same pair of cats on Noah's Ark as the lion that I see at the zoo. 
I'm having a hard time with that, right? What you got to understand is what's the alternative view being proposed to you? The alternative view being proposed to you is, well, your cat isn't just traced back to that cat. Your cat is traced back to that plant. <laughs> okay? And when both sides are saying, we're both agreed on this, we've got a stipulation between both sides that, th that we're good with this, all right? You just got to realize the, al the alternative is much harder to swallow than that. All right? So when it comes to the number of kinds on Noah's Ark, how many, really, let's talk, how many did you get on there? Because are we talking nine million? If you have nine million species, all right, even if it was species, let's talk a minute about species. When it comes to species in this tree of life idea and the evolutionary idea, number one, you got to realize that's made up of not just animals. That's made up of plants, too. Okay. Now, Noah does end up having to take food on the ark. He ends up taking, how do you take food on the ark? How are you going to take all this? Isn't he going to spoil? You just take the seeds. He doesn't need to take an apple tree. He doesn't even need to take an apple. You just take the seeds. You take enough food to eat, but when you're preserving life and you're, you're going to propagate whatever you're going to propagate when you get to your destination, you take the food you need to get through your passage and, and a little bit to leftover while those seeds that you've got, you're going to be able to plant in the ground and wait for them to grow. So he was a prepper. He was a prepper, the original prepper. I like that. <laughs> exactly right. But when it comes to species, number one, we got to narrow it down to animals. So those nine million already, we're chopping off a big jump because a lot of the species, he, he's talking about animals, the kinds, when he's talking about kinds, okay? So when you're talking about also what can you lop off, you're talking about everything that lives in the sea. He doesn't need to take anything that's living in the water, right? Because right? They, they're going to be fine, <laughs> all right? Did you know there are more species in the water than there are on land? That takes care of a huge chunk. Also, he doesn't need to take care of anything that's microscopic, right? You agree with me on that? He doesn't... By the way, the microscopic, there's four main types of microorganisms in the ocean. There's algae, protozoa, bacteria, and viruses. And when it comes to these four here, viruses are the most abundant biological agents in seawater. And regarding bacteria, it's one of the most abundant organisms on the earth. When you're talking total number of species, a huge number of these are bacteria and viruses. <laughs> Noah's not instructed, hey, I'm going to send you bacteria and viruses. They're going to come your way. Just find a place for them on the ark. He doesn't need to do that. He doesn't even know they exist. So of the 9 million, we're chopping off a whole lot. What are we left with, okay? Well, the realization that we're not even talking about species anyway. So instead of a chihuahua, instead of St. Bernard, instead of a Dalmatian, instead of a Great Dane, he just needs to take male and female dog. Male and female dog, come along on the ark. Male and female cat, come along on the ark. Okay, so now we're really narrowing it down. There was an early study that was done, and it was proposed after the concluding the study, that as a maximum, a really comfortable maximum, you're talking 16,000. 16,000 kinds instead of 9 million. That's a lot smaller group. That's an early study. Since then, it's been found to be about 1,000. About 1,000 kinds. How many actual animals is it? Well, 2 times that 1,000 is 2,000 animals. Some of the categories are going to have 7, so that's going to bump it up a little bit. We're at about 5,000 animals. Okay, so if you go from 1,000 kinds to about 5,000, 8,000 animals, is that doable? Mm -hmm. When they did this study where there were 16,000 kinds, they found there was room for 16,000. And now when it's down to 1,000, there's lots of room. <laughs> there's lots of room. You're going, but how do they fit those really big ones? Let's talk a big animal. Let's talk a 65-ton 
Drodnotus. Apparently, that's a really big dinosaur. I had to look it up. I'm like, what does this look like? It's big. It's a big dinosaur. The biggest dinosaur that I'm probably they were proposing in the article I read. 65 tons. That's going to take up a lot of space. Unless you take a small one. Don't animals come in different sizes? This Drodnotus, 65-ton animal, it's born from an egg the size of a football. Take the juvenile animals. You don't need the full-size adult. You want something robust and healthy when you get there anyway, right? <laughs> you don't want it to be at the end of its life and die on your voyage. Oh, dear. I just bought us a Drodnotus. So you take the small version of it. The whole point is, is this possible? Yes, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what you're saying that is what we're seeing in these different um, changes in dogs and yes. variances in dogs could be the product of the microevolution. Yes, exactly that right. Point forward. Exactly right. I remember I, I was working with a judge prior to this judge, and I remember the day he he, he announced to uh, the clerk and I that he got a new dog, and it was a Labradoodle. Now, I'd never heard of a Labradoodle before. <laughs> what is that? And then he goes, oh, it's a cross between a Lab and a Poodle. <laughs> Wait, when did these come around? It's a relatively recent Back to Noah's day, you just had to have your male and your female dog oh, yeah. from which, through their DNA, had all the coding that was needed for all the other dogs. Yeah. One of the other things I want to look at, just, just as we leave here, verse 22, Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Noah was obedient. Obedience to God is a long process. How old is he when... Uh, he was 500 years old when Shem, Ham, and Jacob were born. Years, okay. So the amount of time it took to build the ark that God made the announcement could have been up to 100 years. Some people would even say 120 because they use another verse. I guess we can show you next week. But basically the point is, it's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> All right? Long God calls for us to be obedient long term. We don't get to be obedient this week and then say, Whew, I satisfied my requirement. <laughs> right? God says, I want you to be the type of person that I can trust for the life. God's looking for people to persevere. Noah stands as an example for us of somebody who perseveres. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the exciting things that we can find just by digging a little bit. Lord, that your word is trustworthy yet again. We thank you, God, that we are not confronted with elements of myth here, but rather we are confronted with elements of reality. Lord, this is just yet another example of, could God's word be trusted? Absolutely. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to go, and we pray that you would help us to make a difference in the sphere of influence that we have with the people that we have connections with this week. All of us have different people that you've placed in our lives, and you've placed us in their lives. Help us, Lord, to bring good news, to bring light to the places that are darkening and are surrounded by bad news. Help us, Lord, to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.